And while the children are going, let me encourage you now to have your Bibles open in front of you. And would you turn with me one more time this morning to the book of Genesis and find chapter 11. Very first book of the Bible, book of beginnings, book of Genesis, chapter 11, and let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness to us this past week. We thank you for your faithfulness to us every day. And God, we ask you now to help us to receive spiritual nourishment that you intend for us and that we so desperately need. God, we recognize that there is no doubt some humbling that is needed in every one of us. And so, God, I pray, would you incline us away from other things, away from high thoughts of ourselves or high thoughts of what we might accomplish. God, I pray that you would redirect in your mercy, draw us to yourself. Our hearts, our minds, our ears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we come this morning to the very last entry in this series that we've been in on these key issues, key foundational truths from the opening chapters of God's Word. And let me say again something that I've mentioned, I know, at least a few times over these past weeks. This series is not about politics. This series is not about the election, but it's not been unaware of the election. It's definitely had the election in view, and as we head now into this election week, with all of us wondering what's going to happen, or as my dear wife said so eloquently on the way into church this morning, woo-wee baby, let's get this over with. There is one more key issue from God's Word that I want us to consider together. Um, there is a statement called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Maybe you've heard of it. It was written in the year 1646 by an assembly of ministers of the Church of England, and it has served as something of a summary of what Christians believe for many believers over the years, and part of that confession of faith is a catechism. And the very first thing that appears in that catechism is a question. Maybe you know it. What is the chief end of man? That is a really good question. What is your main purpose in being alive? What is your reason for existing? Now, let's be clear, that is not an essay question designed to give you an opportunity to share your own personal thoughts. And that is not 
a multiple choice question with several possible right answers. No, that question has a right answer. It's getting at why we were made. What, what is every person on the planet made for? Here's the answer. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our lives, our being alive as human beings is meant to show the greatness of God and we are meant to live a life enjoying the fullness of who God is. The chief end, the chief purpose of man is to show the greatness and glory of God and to enjoy him forever. I find that to be such a helpful and focusing question and answer, but I've always thought that immediately after that first question and answer, it should say, and what is the chief temptation of man? Answer, to glorify himself and to enjoy his own greatness and glory. And that is exactly what we see in our passage this morning. What we find in Genesis chapter 11 is maybe one of the most well-known stories in the book of Genesis. It's right up there with the account of creation, right up there with the account of the flood. It's the story, the account of the Tower of Babel. And it is a timeless story. It speaks to us here in the 21st century as directly and as knowingly as it did to its first readers when Moses first wrote this down. And it has, I believe, a powerful message for us, both as individuals and as a nation, that we need to hear. So you follow along as I read the first nine verses of Genesis 11. This is God's word. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, let's get a clear sense of what is actually going on here, historically speaking. After the flood, which we read about in chapters 7 and chapters 8. Noah and, and his family, remember, they come out of the ark, and God makes a covenant with Noah. And he tells Noah now the same thing that he told Adam and Eve. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which Noah and his sons begin to do. Genesis chapter 10 gives us this genealogy of Noah and his sons. Look how chapter 10 starts. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem and Ham and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then look how chapter 10 ends. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And you read that, and you might think, well, good, okay. They're doing what God told them to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But actually, they didn't. They hadn't done that. Along the way... At one point, they resisted what God had told them to do. In fact, they said, no, we're not going to do that. So God had to step in and make sure that they did what he had told them to do. What we read there at the very end of chapter 10, the second part of that verse, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood, that came about because of something God did. And Genesis chapter 11 explains how what we read at the end of chapter 10 actually happened because it wasn't by their willing and happy obedience. So Genesis 11 actually backs up a little bit. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words and as people migrated from the east they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Now let me just show you something very interesting here. Look back at chapter 10 verse 6. The sons of Ham. So Ham is one of Noah's sons, and they're named there, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Now look at verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So here you have now the third generation from Noah. Noah had Ham, Ham had Cush, Cush had Nimrod, and remember Noah had three sons. They're each having multiple children. Japheth had seven sons, Shem had five sons, Ham had four sons, and they all have kids. So now they're out three generations. There, there may be, we don't know exactly, there may be maybe a hundred, maybe several hundred people. By the time Nimrod is grown, Another generation or two is on the scene. So the human race is multiplying, and a large group of them, they're moving eastward. They're doing what God had said, but they come to this beautiful place, this wide, open, beautiful plain, probably in the very fertile area of Mesopotamia, which gets its name because it's between two rivers. This would have been a very lush and beautiful place. And verse 2 says, they saw this plain and they settled there. They said to one another, verse 3, come, let's make bricks. And they had brick for stone. They had this mortar made out of this kind of pitch type stuff. And then they said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face 
of the whole earth, which, you know, at first seems okay to settle down and build, except for that very last part, lest we be dispersed over the face of the, old, of the whole earth. I mean, you can understand the instinct, right? They, they want community. They want protection. They want, they want rest. And I'm guessing most of us can relate because following God's will can be tiring sometimes. But God had said, multiply and fill the earth. I'll provide the protection you need. I'll give you the right amount of community and rest that you need. But they said, no, enough of this. Traveling. Let's all stop and settle. In fact, let's cluster here. Do you see what's happening in verse 4? Something very significant is happening in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. These people are choosing to disregard and disobey what God had said. And the key to what's really going on in their hearts is right there in the middle of verse 4. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's settle here and let's build something impressive. Let's fortify and glorify ourselves. Don't miss this. This is an explicitly defiant act. This is an explicitly anti-God choice. This is purposely pushing God and his purposes to the side and deciding we want to be in charge here. We want to be the great ones here. We are taking over and we're going to make a name for ourselves. That's what this tower is all about. There's no prayer here. There is no looking to God or inquiring of God or worship of God. This is going to be in man's honor. This is a city of man, by man, for man. And if that sounds a little bit familiar, there's a reason for that. It's what our society is like. And it's what French and English Enlightenment society was like. And it's what Roman society was like in Paul's day. It's what every human society is like. You reject God. You turn your back on God. You suppress the truth about God. You say, I'm not following God's design. This is the human condition, and you can trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. We'll decide what's best for us. We don't need God telling us how to live. We're going to step in and we're going to take the place of God and we're going to make a name for ourselves. That is the story of mankind to this very day apart from the redeeming grace of God. You know, there is is a great irony in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Remember what the people had said in verse 4? Let's build a tower and make a name for ourselves with its top reaching up into the heavens. And God says, "Uh, let's go down and see what they're doing down there. What are you doing down there with, with your little mini Lego blocks? I can't, I can't quite see it. What? What are you doing down there? Now, clearly, God sees. He sees and knows all things. This is, the, this is the divinely inspired author communicating the spiritual, the true reality of things going on here. This is God's way of communicating the puniness of man's great achievements. I mean, just think of that amazing skyline in downtown Chicago with all of its 
massive buildings. You stand there and it's impressive. God is not impressed. We need to pay attention to this. We can be so impressed, can't we, with our accomplishments? We like to glory in what we've done and making a name for ourselves. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible. What God is saying is that there's a really bad trajectory here. You see, this is not the concern of someone who feels threatened. This is not concern over some rival. This is the concern of a loving creator, a loving father, who knows this is not heading in a good direction. He sees that this is only the beginning, and fueled by pride, man would, man would continue unchecked to do whatever he can to make a name for himself. And there will be no limit to the ways that humanity will seek to exalt itself and remove God from the picture. Sound familiar? So God acts. I mean, he seriously reduces man's capacity to exalt himself. He forcefully puts in place these, these linguistic and cultural and geographical barriers that will make it hard for humanity to cooperate in rising up against God. So God confused their language. He gives them all sorts of different languages and he disperses them, verse 8, over the face of the earth. Look at, look at verse 9. Therefore its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Listen, God's will will be accomplished. We can resist it to our own harm, but God's will will be done. And he gets it done, in this case, through this grand diversification, which, by the way, he will also use for his purpose and for his glory, which we'll see. So what we see here, put on full display, is the chief impulse of man apart from God, to raise himself up to make a name for himself, to make a stand pridefully independent of God. And every time we seek to make a name for ourselves, we are participating in this same sin. This, this temptation to point to ourselves and think, it's my strength, it's, it's my ability, it's my wisdom that has gotten us, gotten me what we've gotten. I mean, that is in all of us. Every one of us carries this. Not, not all sins are like this. Not everybody struggles with anger. Not everybody struggles with greed. All of us struggle with this. And God sees these thoughts and he says, are you serious? What do you have that you have not received from me? But it's hard. I know there is something in all of us that wants this. Our hearts really want for us to be made much of. We crave recognition. We, we crave glory. We want our name to be known and our name to be mentioned. When we're with others, there's this very strong desire to call attention to ourselves, to be thought highly of. We have a desire to do or say something, to heighten ourselves in the estimation of others. And, and when we've done something that we think is worthy of praise, this desire for recognition or for honor can be so strong. That's what these people were after. 
They, they wanted everyone who saw their tower or who heard about their tower to be impressed with them and give them glory and praise. They, they wanted a name for themselves. And whenever that happens, it is both a foolish and a dangerous thing. Now, I want to be very clear about something this morning. I so believe in the goodness of hard work and of accomplishing good and worthwhile things. I am so grateful, and I want to give appropriate honor to those who build beautiful and useful buildings. God's Word speaks very clearly about things like this, about the good of hard work and the good of accomplishing worthy things. That's not the issue here. The issue is, is the disobedience and especially the motive. It's all about what's going on in the heart and whatever Whenever what was happening here happens in our lives or, or in a nation's life, it is a foolish and dangerous thing. One of the very clear messages of God's word is that God opposes the proud. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble to those who acknowledge him, to those who honor him. Grace. I want grace. I, I want it for myself. I want it for my children. I want it for my church. I want it for my country. So what do we do? Well, I think we start by getting ourselves clear again about the greatness of our God and his worthiness of our honor and our lives and our obedience, the unique, unparalleled reality of God's greatness. We get clear about that and we very appropriately humble ourselves under him. As we think about our lives, as we think about how to think, as we think about how to live in this world, humility has got to be a major part of the equation. For the Christian, humility needs to be a purposed, active part of how we live and how we approach everything. Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis. This is from his great book, Mere Christianity, which if you've never read it, I would strongly encourage you to read it, and if you don't have a copy, come see me and I'll give you a copy. Uh, this is from the chapter in that book entitled, The Great Sin. Here's what Lewis says. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. In other words, there must be an active recognition of God and his greatness and a purpose living for him because in the absence of an active pursuit of God's glory, human pride will assert itself. It's there. It's right there. It's ready. It's crouching at the door. For the Christian, humility has got to be a fundamental, foundational thing because the persistent temptation of man is to lift himself up and make a name for himself. And interestingly, not coincidentally, 
the leading characteristic of Jesus is his humility. And he calls us to follow him. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, let me do my best to bring this to application in our own lives and in our own current situation. I want us to think about three different levels of application. So first, it's in our thinking on a political, national level. So think with me about the balance that God's Word encourages us to hold between our patriotism and our Christianity. There is no question that God intends there to be some weight to our national and cultural identity. Listen to what Paul says as he's preaching in the great city of Athens. This is in Acts chapter 17, and he says this, speaking about God. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So there is an endorsement by God of national and cultural realities. But listen to the next verse. He did this that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In other words, one is there, the national cultural realities to serve the other. God established earthly kingdoms, if you will, to serve a larger kingdom purpose. Listen, patriotism can very easily slip into nationalism, where our nation becomes our primary allegiance and our primary place of hope and our primary place of security, which is idolatry. Love of country, love of a particular people, love of a peace among those people, those things are very good, but it should never become ultimate. I mean, listen to how this shows up in another place. One of the key passages in the Bible that should inform us as Christians about how we should think about government. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you see the connection? Human government exists and is ordained by God to establish peace so that people can come to know God. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So, application number one, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And pray that those who are in positions of human authority will rule in such a way that they serve God's purposes. Second, an application on a very personal level. I've got a question for you this morning. 
How will you handle the results of the election on Tuesday and Wednesday? I read this little piece um, at the, the Friday Forum a few weeks ago on the election. This is actually written by a, a Kenyan pastor after one of the most bitterly contested elections in their nation. Here's what he wrote. After a bitterly contested election, it doesn't take a genius to know that some of your members will be angry and maybe even a little bitter. Meanwhile, others will be giddy and relieved. So first, where is your hope, Christian brother, sister? Is your hope firmly in God who has things in control? Read Psalm chapter 2 if you need to be reminded of that. But then, what is the posture of your heart? Is it all wound up, ready to gloat, or ready to groan? Listen, this putting of our hope in God doesn't mean we don't vote, and it doesn't mean that we don't engage. It just means that we vote and we engage very differently from those who don't know God. You know that verse where Paul reminds Christians that in the face of death, when you lose a loved one who's a Christian, it's right to grieve, but not as those who have no hope. I think it should be exactly the same in your voting. Yes, vote, but don't vote like those who have no other hope. And then when the results come in, Christian, rest. Be at peace. Live like those whose hope is somewhere else. One last thing I want to call our attention to, and this this is the largest application. This is like a big umbrella over everything. There is something happening here in Genesis chapter 11 that gets picked up very purposefully gets picked up. Here in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, remember it says, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens. There is more than just a hint there of man's desire to be like God, to put himself in the position of God. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3 what the serpent said to Eve? You will be like God. I mean, what a heady thing for Eve and for Adam to hear. You'll be like God, but for man... To actually be in right relationship with God, to know God, and to fully realize his God-likeness. Remember, we're made in the image of God. In order for that to happen, God must make himself known. Man does not have the ability to climb up that high. No, God must come down. And he does. Maybe you'll remember the story of Jacob's dream. It's found in Genesis chapter 28. He lays down one night, and he sleeps, and he dreams. And in his dream, there's this ladder. It's foot on the ground, and its top reaches up to heaven. Sound familiar? And angels are going up and down on it, and God is standing there at the top of that ladder. And then Jesus, many generations later, picks up that dream And this is in the Gospel of John, and and he says to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending. And then he adds this phrase, on the Son of Man. In other words, 
Jesus is the latter. He is the way to get to God. He came down to make a way for us. God came down and has made a way for mankind. Mankind who is scattered over the face of the earth. Mankind speaking its 6,000 plus different languages. He, come, he came down so that we might know him. How, do, how does this happen? I want you to see something really wonderful. I've shared this with you before, but follow me here. In Genesis chapter 11, God scatters the people into different languages and nations. And then in the rest of Genesis chapter 11, there is a genealogy of a particular line, and it leads us right to one man, Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, I'm going to make you great. And I'm going to make you into a nation, and through you and that nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Time marches on. We read throughout the Old Testament of the various nations of the world, but especially of one nation. And God keeps repeating this promise to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, and then generations later to David. And eventually, this child is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and he's named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. That child grows up and he preaches a gospel of salvation and then he gives his life as a ransom for many and three days later he rises from the dead and the last thing that he tells his disciples before he returns to the Father is, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. But before you go, I want you to just wait for a little while in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. The Holy Spirit is going to come to you. And 40 days later, at the Feast of Pentecost, with people from all sorts of nations and languages gathered there in Jerusalem, it's marvelous when you read all the nations named there in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes, and Peter preaches, and all of those people miraculously hear the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language. God does that. It is the great reversal of Genesis 11. The great undoing of Babel. And people are saved and reunited with God in Christ. And that foreshadows what will be in the great gathering of nations when in heaven there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and then... Don't miss this. A great city will come down from heaven with high walls, towering walls, gleaming architecture. It will come down out of heaven and its gates will open to reunite the nations. It's amazing. Do you see how God redeems? All of the nations with all those languages shouting now praise to God for the salvation he brings through Jesus. The great message for us here, the great message of the Bible is that God's mercy outruns his judgment. But his mercy, his grace, is for those who put away their pride and who humble themselves. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. 
Let not the rich man boast in his wealth. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows God. So in our thinking about our country and in our thinking about our own lives, let us not seek a name for ourselves. Let us press on to know God. I shared this at the Friday Forum on the election a couple weeks ago. I thought it would be a good way, good time to share it again. With this I close. It's a little prayer that David Platt shared in his book called Before You Vote. Here's what he says. Do not be faithless on that day when you cast your ballot. Do not trust in yourself on that day. Do not trust in a candidate or a party on that day. Do not trust in anyone or anything but Jesus on that day. Make the stewardship of your vote the overflow of radical trust in Jesus, his word to you, his spirit in you, his rule over you, and his reign not only in our nation but over all the nations. When you hold your ballot in your hand, pause and thank Jesus for his loving leadership of your life and his sovereign lordship over this election. And then as you check that box, offer this simple and sincere prayer. Lord, may your kingdom come.